This episode of the Get Fast podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You are joined, as always, by your host, former Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly, and I am Jordan Donnelly. A man with a VO2 max on par with the likes of the world's best cyclists and touted as Australia's next Cadell Evans. Why did Will Walker retire from the sport so early? We are absolutely privileged to have Will Walker on the podcast today with an incredible start to his professional cycling career. Results at 20, 18 to 23 years old that looked like he was going to be one of the world's best cyclists. Will Walker abruptly retired from the sport of cycling with a heart condition. By the time he was 21, he'd already won the under 23 men's road race at the Australian Nationals, ahead of the elite men no less. He'd won silver in the under 23 men's world championship road race at 19 and he's ridden two grand tours, uh, but the heavy workload took its toll on his body. At 21, Will developed mononucleosis and Bell's palsy and had also been diagnosed with a cardiac arrhythmia known as tachycardia, a condition in which the heart beats faster than it normally should, all while pumping less blood around the body. The condition saw Will retire from the sport in early 2009, but in early 2012, made a return. That's what we wanted to talk to Will about today, and we had a pretty epic discussion with him uh, his what he had to say throughout the whole podcast was absolutely phenomenal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, really great to, to talk to someone who's uh, seemingly done everything in cycling, yet is still only thirty five years of age um, and has been retired, you know, since two thousand and fourteen, um, seven years ago. And you know, winning the national road race at the age of eighteen and winning the Melbourne to Warrnambool uh, second at the World uh, Road Race Championships. You know, he's, he's been a rider for Rabobank. Um, you know, he, he has been a pro rider in the peloton for four or five years before he had some, you know, really bad health medical conditions that cut short a, a phenomenal career. You know, Max VO2 of 94. There's so many things that Will had going for him, and yet his career ended so quickly. And and that's one of the things that, you know, the listeners would, can you know, you just got to live for each day and make the most of every day because you just don't know what's going to happen next, you know. At 18, winning the world, uh, winning the Australian Road Race Championships against, you know, the likes of Robbie McEwen, um, who had been on the World Pro Tour, you know, for years. Um, he had the world at his feet. And yet, you know, look what happens six years later. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a great example. And he's not bitter about any of that. He's, he's so grounded. He's gone on to do a medical career, uh, a medical course, where he's almost qualified as a, as a doctor um, and, you know, how to, how to make the best out of every situation. This is, a, this is the best example I've ever um, interviewed and, um, and I'm really wrapped to have him on, on our program and, and send his message, which is just phenomenal. And we start his story off on the podcast with the Nationals Road Race in 2014 where he made a comeback in his first team back on the pro circuit. Uh, he was in an early breakaway of 17 riders. Uh, in that race, but it was in the breakaway that Will started to feel telltale signs of tachycardia, and we'll let Will tell the story from here. So without further ado, here is the podcast with Will Walker. All right, Will, we want to give you a big welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for jumping on, and I want to start by asking you straight away uh, about the day that you retired from professional cycling, and uh, what happened in that Nationals road race where uh, all reports say that your heart rate got to a whopping 270 beats per minute 
um, and you were forced onto the side of the road. Uh, can you explain to us that, that epic story and, and how that's possible? Thanks um, very much for the intro, Jordan. Um, yeah, well, I actually see myself as having two retirements, really. Um, so the one that you were talking about, I think, was in 2014, in January at the Nationals. Um, but before that, I, you know, in my mind, I'd retired at 2009 and only then made a comeback three years later, um, you know, with a smaller team called Drapak. So going to the 2012 incident, uh, sorry, 2014 um, at the Nationals, I was in the breakaway, I was doing pretty well. I had retired and I was known to have um, some arrhythmias or predisposition to having cardiac arrhythmias on the bike. And up to that point, most of the time, they were mostly asymptomatic, meaning that I'd, I'd feel that something was going on in my heart and we could trace it on an ECG, but they you know, were only sustained for 10 or 20 seconds um, and then they'd go away. Um, and on this instance, um, I'd actually was in the breakaway at the Nationals. Um, I had a couple of those feelings and I decided to just almost pull out for the day. But then I was, as I was going back, I realised that if I, you know, go from the main, sorry, from the breakaway and I pull out before the Peloton even catches me, that will look a bit weird. So I was literally just drifting back to the Peloton up the hill and I felt my heart go again. Um, so I pulled off to the side of the road and I actually stayed in a sustained ventricular arrhythmia. So that's where the, the normal conduction system of the, of the heart is not really working anymore and it's replaced by this, you know, conduction, electrical conductive loop that, causes the ventricles to beat really, really quickly um, and often results, you know, in, in reduced cardiac output, um, feelings of impending death and, and sometimes even death. Mm. Um, and, and that was me at the Nationals in 2014. And I was probably lucky enough that my heart was quite big at that stage and well-trained so it could sustain an irregular rhythm. Um, and, and the ambulance got to me and, you know, within, you know, I think probably 15 minutes, half an hour or so, I was cardio inverted. So that's the scene in the movies where they put the pads on you and um, brought back to a normal rhythm. And that was that. So I was pretty, um, there was no other decision but to retire on that day. So I'd literally gone from, you know, retiring in 2019 from the high level of world tour, making a smaller comeback probably doing it with more realistic aims and wanting to get back to study and make some better choices and look after my body to then quickly realising that, you know, this this has gone from something that was, you know, short and potentially controllable to something that's way out of my league and I'm just lucky to be alive um, and, a, and a swift retirement. An easy decision, I suppose, when it's that obvious, isn't it, when you're, you're near death, but... But you would have had some similar experiences, you know, from 2008, 2009 for your first retirement. Did you have something similar happen to you that put you in retirement in the first place? Was it something similar that occurred? I think from the outside it looks like it was something similar. In reality, um, 
you know, I, I had one of those, I'm sure those Epstein-Barr virus type, you know, symptoms or, you know, actual viruses for a while and I, I just couldn't get on top of that. So I was, you know, coming up through the under-23 ranks, I was as strong as anybody or one of the strongest, um, moving straight to the World Tour, did the Vuelta when I was 19, got through that. with. I, I really tried to not do anything, not go in any breakaways, really, re- you know, take it easy through it. Six months later, I did the Giro, and after I did the Giro, I started falling apart. I got super skinny, um, probably there was a lot of overtraining. I wanted to get better. You know, the pro level at that time was pretty high for obvious reasons, and in some instances, you just you wanted to train more and more to try and get there, and mm. I just, my body started to crumble, and that was a little bit the Epstein-Barr virus, and it, it just meant that when I had those weeks where I, I didn't have any go, um, I literally just went from, you know, having a threshold of 360 watts or 6 watts a kilo to probably 4 watts a kilo within a couple of days. And you, you just, yeah, so... That was probably the, the main factor in the first retirement. I had had some arrhythmias with my heart. A sensible me would have just stayed retired for good. Um, but, you know, we're all athletes. And I think if any athletes are watching this, you know that the reason for having a coach, even when you know what to do, is that when you're too close to yourself, you don't actually make the right decision. You, know, you constantly, doesn't matter how much you learn, you coach yourself or take your own advice, you start to make poor decisions in cycling uh, or in any sport, I think. So I probably made a few of those being young and, you know, cycling at that stage was all I knew and was what I was good at. So my, my comeback really in 2012 was about after three years of not feeling comfortable in the normal world was really about doing something that I was good at again and, it's so so true. And those three years, the interlude, what did you get up to in that period to keep your mind? Because you'd been so intensely involved in cycling at, at the best level in the world. What, what did you do in those three years? I did a few things. I did a, um, a, my older brother, who's a builder and property developer now, we did the first two projects together. Um, I started an import business. I had couple of jobs um i even got a job setting up um or working with the green edge team before they started in 2014 so never short of things to do i was pretty busy i was probably busier than i am now yeah um and, and getting close to doing some really good things but kind of just falling short all the time and i don't know felt like you know some of those jobs even at green edges Green Edge, which would have been a major opportunity for anybody. For me, it felt like sometimes I wanted to be there. Sometimes it wasn't enough to be fulfilling. I'm yeah. not. I'm not even sure. I haven't reflected too much on it. Yeah, but I did stay busy. Um, but doing all of those different things just made me realise how good I was at one thing before, and how not so good I was at many other things after that. And was that the driving reason to make the comeback that you sort of had unfinished? In you know, a career that you wanted to continue, or was your was your goal set different to what it was when you were, you know, two thousand six to two thousand nine, where you were, you know, right at the top level. 
yeah, yeah. Look, at the time, I didn't think my goal set was so different. Um, I think it wasn't. I think it was to really settle down, and I had the opportunity through Michael Drapak. Um, we spoke about it. I make a comeback um, and do uni at the same time. So I did a full time finance degree um, while I was making my comeback. Um, but you know, realistically, now as a thirty five year old and watching guys older than me still racing. It's pretty crazy to think that because I'd had a three-year retirement, I felt old when I was 26 making a comeback. It's, it's pretty baffling right now because I'm nine years older than that again. But I, I did feel like somewhere in the back of my mind that it wasn't too possible. Um, I still went to a world tour camp with liquid gas. Yes. It was just as good as the average rider there. I definitely wasn't as good as I was when I was younger. Um, and that's probably a little bit, I just, my body couldn't quite get as skinny as it used to be. Um, yeah. and I don't think I really wanted to do anything drastic to do that either. Um, so there was a change in mindset. Um, looking back on it now, if I probably forgetting the fact that, you know, if I did have a hypothetical good heart and I had that chance again, it would have been better to go back with somebody to guide me through it, you know, that you bounce ideas off and talk about training camps and where to improve, yeah. but I largely did it mostly with my own stubborn mind going forwards. Yeah, and you didn't have much help or assistance um, from any outside coaches along that way or was it? Um, uh, you know, with the VIS days when I was younger, I had Dave Sanders as a coach, um, but then when I was 19 in Rabobank, I made a the best decision I made was to get Aldo Sassi as my coach. Um, and because I had good testing in VO2 max, he was pretty willing to take on a young Aussie kid. Um, and he was amazing. I have, to interrupt, was- I have to interrupt you here. For those who are listening, your VO2 is probably one of the highest recorded from any athlete in the world at 94. And is that correct? It yeah. is 94, Will? Yes. Uh, look, to be honest, I, I forget the numbers. No, I don't really forget the numbers. They've, <laughs> they've been around there. We've got some world-class athletes like Armstrong and and the like who are lower numbers than that. And, look, every every day Joe cyclist is around 40 to 50. So, you know, you can, you can just imagine the engine you must have. Did you did you realise that at an at a early age that you had – an ability to sustain really good uh, exercise output, even as a as a junior, as a as a young kid growing up at school, did you did you have that feeling that um, you had extra special physiology? Um, everybody talks about you know VO two as if you you just rock up on a bike without training and it's high. I think that's got to be the biggest misnomer ever invented. Because um, I you know when I was in primary school and high school, I remember this one kid, he was a good triathlete too, Monty Frankish. We went to school together and he was so much faster, so much stronger on a bike without training than I ever was. But then I got to 16 and, you know, I, I finally caught up and grew a little bit and got became a bit more of a man. And I must admit, you know, then I I thought, oh, I wonder how, um, you know, you meant to train and I just invented training programs up in Bride of doing various different climbs and I like pushing myself. 
and I'd come back from two weeks in Bright and I'd just be looking at people and just thinking, why are you even hurting right now? And it just never even dawned on me that people just used to get so puffed up hills. I just think you guys just sound like you're about to have a heart attack. Yeah. Um, and that was probably where I started to realise that my, um, you know, aerobic capacities were quite a lot higher than, than okay. everybody. And, and that used to be, yeah, it was pretty evident. I mean, when I was in high school in year 12, I did the Bay Crits and I still wasn't a good enough cyclist to figure out that I should be there, um, let alone how to get to the front of the peloton. But by day four on the Bay Crits, I was, you know, good enough to ride away from McEwen and everybody and win pretty much solo. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, I, you, you do start to realise pretty quickly when you've got a higher um, ability to sustain yep. that power that other people don't. It's quite fun. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> I wanna, yeah, well, I wanted to ask on that note, I mean, um, do you, you – there's so much to unpack here, but one, and we will get into this, now you are in – you told us just off fair that you're in your final – um, year of your med degree. Um, so this is why you are so articulate with your own condition uh, and a lot of these concepts. Um, but with a VO2 max of uh, 94 or somewhere around that area, um, have you de- been able to do any testing on yourself in the last um, eight years or so since retirement um, or seen anyone else with similar uh, aerobic capacity or physiology to you um, that's given you any more understand- understanding with regards to sports science and your own body's capabilities? Yeah, I guess there's two questions there. Um, I have done a VO2 max um, for a, a heart study a year ago, but I, had a, I have a very good cardiologist that was right there next to me and um, we got to a talking pace and I was still comfortable and we stopped it just because there's really no, no point giving my heart any chance to do anything crazy ever again. So. I don't think I'll ever be able to do a VO2 max test again. I, I hope right now I'll never do a bike race again um, or any type of competition, but I, I don't know. I really just hope I won't. Um, and then the other question is physiology. I mean, you know, what does it take to be a good athlete? And the, the old answer is choose your parents wisely, and that's really it. Um, I think cycling in the past you know from the pool it was a pretty small pool and they all became pros so to me as much as it seemed to be difficult to turn pro in the past I don't think you needed to have the right genetic makeup Uh, a lot of the people coming through now are starting to be from a maybe a slightly bigger pool Um, but I think the motor is the motor but on the flip side if you aren't genetically blessed I think you could probably achieve anything in sport if you really wanted to anyway with the right work ethic um, and the right training. Uh, I don't think the motor's the be-all and end-all um, and not in cycling as well, even though it's probably the sport that needs the motor as much as cross-country skiing and, and cross-country running. There's also a lot of tactics involved and, if, you know, a sprint can still get you a lot of victories. So. You know, somebody with a VO2 max that's only at 65 could probably still race World Tour. They might just have some pretty tough days on the bike um, in some of those stage races. That's, that's amazing um, you say that, yeah. 
I think it's a great point for our listeners because, you know, we do talk a lot in our coaching business about it's all very well, you know, to have a great physiology, um, but bike racing is not won generally by the, the fittest rider. It's won, won by the fittest plus the smartest. And, and you know, there's been so many examples of a, a person who is less capable than someone who has all the correct medical data and, you know, will beat them week in, week out just on pure tactic and now some cycling, it's, which I, I think is really underestimated. You know, people think that oh, I can't beat that person because, you know, they've got a VO2 of, of X and I've got this. Um, but that's not what cycling is predominantly about, is it? I mean, from your experience, there's so many examples you have had, even at the pro level. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of thought just to stop you and say, well, maybe on a hill, data yeah. matters, but then it doesn't either. I mean, you know, Simon Clark's always talked about as that example. The numbers are actually getting pretty good later in his career, but there's probably some local guys that, I mean, they've, they've probably got questionable power readings as well, let's be honest. Mm. Uh, but they've got some massive numbers, but you, you, you wouldn't put a cent on them for going up against one of these guys in on a hill in a proper race um and then then you've got actually flat terrain you know the, the undulating terrain with one kilometer climbs um you know navigating the field the psychology of being overseas working hard day in day out rain i mean it's so much more complex than that um and i think people are probably too caught up on numbers these days i mean you, you definitely want your numbers there day to day and I was probably one of the first guys in the pro peloton to start with a power meter um, used for daily training but it's really so much more complex than that and you put a good head on shoulders and um, you could take away one watt per kilo and and still beat somebody um, pretty easily I think with the right mentality. I love what what you've said about um, the fact that you're your VO2 and your, your biology isn't everything, although it helps. We've spoken a little bit on the podcast before about the fact that Dad and I actually have the exact same VO2 max. Um, quite interesting. Um, the, as a father-son, we've done multiple tests and um, yeah, have recorded the exact same, yet he still smashes me on the bike, which is frustrating. And <laughs> I think that's where it's, a, <laughs> it's above the shoulders. But um, in terms of your own uh, physiology as a junior going straight into the Vuelta and the Giro, uh, do you have any thoughts now in hindsight about the fact that because you could push so hard, your body was pushed too hard at a young age? Yeah, I think that's probably about it. Um, and for the last 10 years, you know, this train of thought would have been that I got pushed too hard too young and, you know, it was probably more my mental cap- capacity that was the thing that pushed me. I mean, I just love training. I mean, even still, I joke with my brothers and think, oh, today I want to go to 100K, you know, get some strength efforts in. And I mean, I'd, I'd love to just get out right now and smash it. But, you know, that's, that's I think, born in me to, to push myself. Um, you know, if, I, if my body could have taken three times the amount of training, I probably would have just lived on the box. And that would have been great. Um, and I don't know what my point is. Where, what was the original question? Well, yes, we you pushed too hard as a young athlete. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, that's it. Um, and and I guess the advice would be to younger riders. I mean, let your body grow. 
you know, make sure you have a multi-sport approach to, to, to growing up. Don't dedicate anything too young. Make sure you study well and be smart and be a good person. And then you've got these young kids that are 21 now and they're winning Tour de France. So you, I don't know. I, I have to sit on the fence with that. I mean, if you want to be really good young and you just want one goal in life, you know, no plan B. And somebody came to me and said, can you coach me? No plan B. I just want to win the Tour de France and I want to win it right now and, and super young. Do you, I guess as a coach, your, your job would be to make sure they make the right decisions by not burning the candle at both ends, getting good recovery, looking after themselves, not training injured, you know, trying to avoid getting sick, doing all of the right things. And then if they still keep progressing, then that's good. And just, you, you know, probably then as well, starting to keep an eye on the medical as well, maybe getting an ECG on an echo once every year, make sure there's nothing going on there. Keep looking at all the blood tests. I mean, taking a more holistic approach. And I think we're going to see a whole generation of young kids coming forward and being really, really strong and they're developing earlier as well. So I don't know. I think looking back at it, there's probably just an element of the fact that I was um, genetically predisposed to having some type of heart arrhythmia. And, you know, if we look at it as a positive thing, mine came about in cycling where mm. there were people know about it with ECGs where I could get medical help straight away. And there are other unfortunate people that, you know, encounter this when they're on a park by themselves and they end up passing away, you know, at a young age because of a, 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 an arrhythmia. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, discussion and uh, we have quite a few younger, younger riders in our, in our coaching business and, and as a coach, I'm really adamant that, and I've seen many, I mean, you know, Jordan's been at school with you know, one particular rider who's gone on to be, you know, in the pro ranks um, and a plan A and a plan B, probably not there. But, um, and, and I'm a real big believer in making sure that you've got a balanced life. And, and if your athletic abilities uh, come through year in, year out, then if you've got a backup plan, you know, what, what do you do when you turn 34? And, and your cycling career is finished. You actually have to have another plan. And and you know, there's so many examples of really talented bike riders at 16, 15, winning state titles and national titles, who aren't riding their bike at 22. And I just think that's such a shame. Um, you know, it, it's just being pushed too soon. To, you know, too much too soon. And they they lose the passion of what they loved at the start, which was you know riding your bike fast in the wind and and with your mates and and yeah, that's the, the side that we are trying to push to make it enjoyable first. Um, and if you really have a passion for it, you will succeed at your goals anyway. Um, is that something you would, in hindsight, now be advocating to to a young Will Walker who's who's you know eighteen and just won the national road title as an under twenty three and beaten all the you know the best riders in Australia? Yeah, I was pretty pretty stubborn when I was a kid. I think so. I mean, you, you can only try as much as you can, but if you had to just map it out in the ideal world, it would have been, I, I probably just didn't, if I was never introduced to a high training load, I wouldn't have known about it. So that would have been probably a good first point. 
if I was in a culture where schoolwork was also, you know, normal, um, that would have been ideal as well. But, you know, in cycling in those days, it was a lot of kids that had dropped out of school early as well. So I was not in the right environment to think that trying hard in year 12 was a pretty good idea. Um, so I think for sure going through, you know, in the, in the perfect world, you would make sure you give yourself an idea of a plan B or at least keep your mind open for what a plan B might look at. But doing well in school, the learning about lots of different things because then the journey of cycling is more enjoyable anyway. Because I think one of the hardest things about elite sport is that when you do have a shit race and, you know, we've all had it when you come second and you should have won and it was because you started the sprint too late and the wrong position or did the wrong gear or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I still wake up at night thinking about races and some of them aren't even big races. I just think, what, why did that wake up at night sweating? That's true. That's true. When I came second. Yeah. But when I, when I was coming back with my... um finance degree you know I thought oh, well, I've got to wake up and just do an assignment or do some school work and, and that was a nicer way to definitely be doing a comeback rather than having a sole focus on elite cycling so I think um definitely the balance growing up you know having a coaching a coach that's you know listens cares um encourages you to think about a plan b do school work is probably going to be more beneficial long-term for your cycling. And it's pretty much the way that the European culture is set up anyway um, because they don't have to make as big sacrifices to turn pro. A lot of them are doing university degrees during their under-23 days. A lot of them are trying really hard in year 12 and not doing massive kilometres like the young Aussie kids. Yeah. So I think, you know, what you guys preach is probably the right um, – Definitely the right thing by the sounds of things. Um, whether or not young kids of today listen is another thing, but um, I guess you can only try. <laughs> I want to ask you about um, things you touched on there. There's going to be a few questions in this and we can go through them one by one if necessary, but life after cycling the second time. So you just mentioned before that you'd love to go on a 100K ride and go smash yourself and there is a bit of an itch there to race one day, although you hope you don't. Um, after cycling the second time, how did you um, get better at it, knowing that you weren't going to go back to cycling? Um, and how do you scratch that itch of, you know, as athletes, you just want to train and you want to train hard. And you, I'm assuming you just can't now. You can't put your heart through any sort of stress. So how do you find that somewhere else? Yeah, well, I think probably the best realisation is that maybe you just can't scratch that itch. So. I mean, you know, maybe you can. Saying that, I probably could have just decided at 34, my heart doesn't work, or 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 you know, actually, it was 2012, so still 27 on a 2014, 28. Let's say, maybe just become a pro golfer, and then I can just it probably would work better for me. I could play all day long, body doesn't get tired. That didn't come into my mind, and you know, maybe one day I'll regret not just trying something else. Um, but I think over the years I've probably just realised that, you know, nothing might ever replace the adrenaline you get from pro sport. And, and that's why, I, you know, anybody that retires early that still has a chance to keep racing or, 
it's not for them because they want to just get a normal job. I, I can't understand it because elite sport living overseas, the adrenaline of competition, of training, of pushing your body, I mean, nothing's ever going to get close to that. And um, I think I'm probably not trying to replace that anymore and I can't replace it with, with sport either. Um, I can do something that's similar like, you know, learning how to surf, getting better at golf, still bike riding, um, playing tennis, you know, all with a lowered heart rate. But I'm not trying to replace exactly what I lost. And now with medicine, I think medicine's it's different again. It's, you know, known as a massive challenge um, academically. It was difficult to get into. Um, but it's a different pathway again. I mean, in terms of the competition, it, so far it's really not up to, you know, it doesn't compare to that, you know, high competition of cycling. I mean, it's it kind of feels more like you're getting on the peloton and it's one of those easy days in the Giro where you cruise along and you wonder what what, what sure, you're going to do that night. night. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well they can't but it, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you know it feels like you're on that big peloton ride where you, you you're touching your brakes more than the pedals and i'm uh, sorry that's that's unfair in medicine um it's not really like that it's it's just not you know you've got all of the people around you it's, it's definitely different to slogging yourself on cycling where you you know it's it's raining and you've got to do a six-hour training ride and you think oh am I going to get through this? I'll just do three. And then after three, you're like, well, I'll just make sure it's four. And then after four, you, you say, oh, stuff it. I'll just do six. And you get through it. You find the mental strength. You break it up. Um, so, you know, and, and I miss that too. I mean, that, you know, that feeling of getting in and you, you sit on the shower floor and you're just That's too exactly. exhausted to take off your bike shorts and, and you, you really, the only thing that's getting you out of the shower is when the water's going to turn cold. Um, they're good. You yeah, know, they're really good. That and mind you, now it's, that's it seems to happen now a little bit just because I'm so unfit. I'll just do a 30K bike and feel the same. That actually reminds me, a question I always wanted to ask is, you know, all the races you did in, in Europe, it didn't seem like you were that uh, happy to, to go along on the coals. Is that something you, you steered away from in your career um, and and that sort of event didn't suit you? Is that is that is that what was in your mind that, you know, I'm going to stick with races that I think I've got better chance in and the, the cobbles were not oh, that? Yeah, that's a good, a good point. I think that's probably the most important thing with, you know, managing your ambitions in sport is to have a realistic impression of what you can achieve and then being strategic in how you're going to do that and what you're going to target. And overall, I probably wasn't that great at that um you know simon gerens is a much better example of figuring out what he was you know trying to go gc realized that it really wasn't the end and all that um the end you know going to be the best bet for him you know coming 10th overall in you know grand tour or 10th in paris nice wasn't up for him so he changed his track and started going for what he knew he could have a chance at winning um and so I guess one of my only good decisions was probably not doing the cobbles because I was I was a little lightweight guy, you know, sixty kilos. Um, I I just cobbles didn't feel right underneath me, um, and they probably were never going to. So I think you leave that for the guys that can do it well. And- yeah, and look, 
There are a lot of highlights in your career. I know we're jumping around a bit from um, what you're doing now presently and how you're concentrating on it, but um, some of the some of the real standout things that you remember looking back, and it's always, you know, it is good to, to, to know that you actually did achieve some really outstanding performances. And one of the iconic races in Australia is the Melbourne Tawarney, which, which you're uh, a winner of. Was that was that a an achievement that sits high in, in your list of of successes, or is it is it just mediocre? Or yeah, I don't mean to de- de- degrade the event, but I'm just interested in your opinion of a race like that, and maybe the Herald Sun Tour, some historical local races. And we know you've done many of the big tours in Europe, you know, some of the toughest races in the world. But but is there any sort of uh, feeling towards the Australian races that are really dear to you that you're, you're really happy you've won? Yeah, um, C grade Tour of Bright in two thousand and one. Awesome, that is fantastic. Yeah, that was um, that was probably my favourite win. Did that finish up in Mount Australia? Buffalo? It did. It finished up Mount Buffalo. I got a. Uh, I reckon I I got beaten up Mount Buffalo actually. It's still um, why is that your favourite? Because you're yeah, you're I don't know. It was just. Um, you know, when I was 13 or 14, I started going up to Bright. My grandparents lived in Bright, you know, so it was an important race for me um, and probably the kind of the start of me becoming half decent. Um, you know, I finally got a new bike and the new bike was not broken in the front end so I could sprint as well and I won the first stage. I, I was first over Tawonga, then 40 guys caught me and then I won the bunch sprint anyway. So... I don't know. Seagrate Tour of Bride. My grandpa was there at the finishing line. Tour of Bride's just such yeah. a good event. I mean, you just, where else would you rather be? Yeah. Um, the other ones, the Baykrits is massive. Warnable's obviously pretty important as well. Um, and that was, you know, big, long day and big build up to that as well. Did you do many of those? That's a very historic Victorian event, isn't it? Yeah, I, I did a couple. I won the last stage. Of one of them when I was super young, when I was 18. Yeah. Um, and that was in a bunch sprint. Um, and then, yeah, and then the last Herald Sun tour I rode, I think I got fifth overall. I was probably close to being the strongest, but a breakaway went early on on stage one and yep. a few people fucked around and no one chased and the four guys stayed away and I got fifth overall really by the time it all came down to it. Um, yeah, that's a that's a really good stage race to do the sub tour. So yeah, and and some of the other events like the under twenty three road race where you got the in the world titles where you got the silver medal is that one of the highlights for you to be on the the world stage as an under twenty three? Yeah, the, the definitely that was. Um, I just finished the Tour de l'Avenir where I was I think sixth overall. Um, and that was an under 25 race, but with World Tour teams. So guys like Brad Wiggins were in it. And, um, so that was pretty good. And then I went straight from there to, to the Worlds where I came second. So I guess I was, it was expected that I'd do pretty well there. Yeah. Um, but that one was probably one of my better tactics. I just stayed last wheel all day and didn't really <laughs> pretend I was in the race. And then on the last lap, you, you, you attack up the hill and yep. it was. Guy that won smashed it. He was away, wasn't he? Yeah, he was away by a mile. He um he's had a sad story. He ended up having a cardiac arrhythmia and passing away. So it's not a good podium for 
No, how are related? Two out of three. Same. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? So you've touched on advice for young people in terms of what maybe what you'd think you'd say to get more balance, although you say yourself, um, you would probably, you'd probably be too stubborn to take it back then because you're so competitive. What do you say for um, the age grouper cyclist, the master cyclist who um, probably needs to remember that balance as well because we all, yeah, we're all competitive. Yeah. And don't take yourself too seriously because that's stressful and that's not good. Yeah. B, I mean, people spend way too much time at coffee shops. That's just absolutely baffling to me because you're not getting better at a coffee shop. I don't care what you're thinking about. But and and if you're going to do a coffee shop right, I mean, do it with. Oh, it's social, so that that it's good social support and great for friendships. But maybe before the ride, not when you're wet and going to get a cold or virus. Um, and definitely not in between the ride as a park up brew stop for an hour and forty five minutes. Um, you know, with a hamburger. You're speaking. So they're like two things. <laughs> yeah, I just. I, I don't really do brew stops like that just because I remember, um, you know, the one thing I was lucky to have in my career was Aldo Sassi, who was probably the most famous coach in the world. Um, he was the head coach of the Map A team and Coach Cadell and all of these guys. And he started doing some work with the Aussies um, and he just called me one time and just said, I can't believe how much time they spent three days out from the world road champs and they're in the coffee shop for 45 minutes and he was beside himself. So there's that. Um, and then I think the third thing is is that you most people are working full time and I admire anybody that's training pretty significantly um, with doing that. So I think the one thing that you've got to be sure to be doing is to be regular every day so if you always get up early then you probably always got to get up early and train and then you've got to go to bed early as well so that you know 5 a.m training doesn't feel like it's long to get up for because if you're waking up particularly early and your body's not on and your power you're probably better off recuperating so it's finding that balance between you know, thinking you're a staffer getting up early and actually giving your body the rest to make sure you can do the adequate training. I think the other thing is when there's only a small window to train that you think about doing it wisely as well. So if it's raining one day, then, you know, and you're meant to be doing an ergo the next day, um, then maybe you should be wise enough to be able to swap that around so that you can do the ergo on the day and use the sun um, for the day that you've got to do your road Ks, um, just because, you know, I think everybody knows if you do, you know, in wintertime, you're training in the wet, your power's down, nothing works as quite as well, you're a little bit less motivated, the average power or TSS score is going to be down. So I think being flexible like that. Um, and I think the other thing is um, the one thing I have noticed over the few years as it looks like people are starting to look at that TSS score and average heart rates and average power in rides as well. And that seems to be trending upwards, which is really good. Because mm. if you've only got 10 hours a week on the bike, there's there's really no point sitting in a bunch at 30K an hour on beach road doing 28K an hour because um, that's just going to make you get slower, I think. 
So I think overall it's about, you know, then picking your goals and working towards your goals. If you're 80 kilos, don't try and win two of right. Well, somebody at 80 kilos probably has done that. So, but you get my drift, you know, work towards your strength. If it's time trialing, focus on that. Make sure your weaknesses aren't too um, much of an Achilles heel. Um, ride hard when you can. Reorganize your training to suit yourself and to suit your health. Look after yourself by sleeping well, eating well. Um, avoid any fads as well. They're, they're never good for anybody. Um, and make sure you've got the right people around you to help with your goals. Um, couldn't have asked. I don't know what else I can really think about. Could have asked for a more perfect answer. I think you summarized <laughs> our entire Travelo motto in about five minutes then. Um, and our last, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, 10 or 15 podcasts worth of topics, you've just, you've just nailed on the head. So that's really good. Um, I have a couple of questions finished, and I'm sure, Dad, you have something as well. Um, your best, best lesson from, from your coach that you, you were ever taught, you know, like you said, one of the best coaches in the world. Um, what's the best lesson you got? That's a, that's a tough one. He got angry at me for playing tennis once. <laughs> uh, and it was with his son, which I thought oh, I was just being a nice guy playing tennis with his son. And I got in trouble. I don't think you're allowed to do too much. If you really want to be good at cycling, you have to um, focus on cycling. That was his motto. I'm not sure I believe in that totally. So I'm not going to. 100% give you that one just yet. Hold on. Let me try and think. I think it's about being regular. That's probably his best motto. Don't be extreme. You know, ride at the same time every day, sleep at the same time, wake up at the same time. Um, you know, eat a normal amount of food that's really healthy. Eat your extra calories that's not a normal person on your bike ride. His was about just making sure it was never something massive or something that writes you off or, or a new fad diet or, or doing anything crazy. It's just it, it's be such, regular. Such a good answer, Will. And look, anything extreme, we've got the motto, it's unsustainable and, and it is in life. It doesn't matter if you're on the bike or whether you're at work, you know, doing a medical degree. If you go extreme, you lose, you lose the thought process anyway. You need to get up and walk around and, and clear your head. There's so many good examples of, of extreme activity is unsustainable, whether you're trying to lose weight, you know, in one week instead of six months or trying to become a better bike rider in three weeks instead of a year. It, it's the same story every time. But my question at the end would be, do you still have the passion to ride your bike? And it's always intrigued me when I talk to, to you know, guys who've been at the top of their game um, and, and do they still love uh, riding their bike? And, and not in a competitive way. I mean, just going outside in the hills on a beautiful day with the sun shining on your back. Does that still, do you gravitate to that still? I am. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a, of a bike ride. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I, I, I mean, last weekend it was a good sunny day, so I rent, went from left Idaho out Mount Pleasant Road and eventually met to St Andrews and have this zigzaggy way of, going along all these cresty hills through Hurst Bridge and places like that. So that got me 80 kilometres and that's about as much as I get before I get too tired and I just do it by myself and thoroughly enjoy all of it. Um, that's fantastic. If I clock 150k a week, I think probably about where I'm at on average at the moment. 
I'm so glad to hear you're still writing and you have the passion. And it is a shame a lot of the time where you see some guys who have been, you know, I, I think about Herb Elliott um, as an example. You know, Australia's greatest 1,500-metre runner of all time won 220 races in a row, won the Olympic gold medal in Tokyo in 1960 by 10, 15 metres, never ran another 1,500 after that race was 20-something years of age, had the world at his feet. And it always intrigued me when I, you know, I always look at uh, successful athletes and what are they doing? Are they still running? Are they still riding? If they're soccer players, do they still kick around the park? You know, it's always an intriguing question. It's great that you still have the passion and that's probably why you were successful anyway because, A, you loved doing bike riding Um, and, and that's, that's great to hear that. Um, yeah, really. Um, one more of those examples of people who, you know, who will succeed because they love doing what they do. And if, if you are really talented at something, you still don't like doing it, you're probably not going to be as successful anyway. Yeah, oh, it's 100% you've got to choose something that you want to do every day because even how good success is, if you're not enjoying the, the, the process, you know, it's, it's not really a fun journey to mm-hmm. To look back on anyway. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of athletes they might get to the top, but if you didn't enjoy anything, you're probably not going to be that fond of a gold medal anyway. Yeah. Um, whereas I get to look back on my C grade tour of Bright as pretty bloody good victory. Um, and and one of my favourites. I still got the yellow jersey up there in my grandparents' house. That that's, um, that probably rates up there with the Warrigal Cycling Club C grade club championships that I took seven years. Oh, they're huge, and and they really are. And I think, and I think the the lesson that we get from that is that as much as it's you say I want to be up there and I want to do this and I want to do that, look what's right in front of you, and just you know if, if you're in C grade and you want coaching, get coaching and just try and win C grade, and you'll have just as much fun. And, you know, you still got to attack. you still got to read everybody's body language. You've still got to look at the parkours. You've got to understand your own characteristics. You've got to feel your own body. You've got to think about, you know, how your nutrition's going. Where's the best place to attack? Or do I wait for a sprint? Do I, do I pretend I'm blown and sit on, the, on his wheel for the last K and come out with 250 to go? Do I wait till 50 metres to go? Or do I, you know, do nothing and then hit him with 600 metres to go when he's, you know, looking at what gear he's in. I mean, all of these things, your mind gets to constantly figure out, you know, how to take, you know, a bloody good race and like a little chess game, make it your own chess game. So I think that's probably my take-home message is that, you know, the little wins or the little competitions, whether you win or not, is irrelevant. It's about enjoying the process. It's about, you know, training for something, setting goals, getting the most out of yourself and having fun along the way. And if you win, that's great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't even matter what grade you're in. Mm. That's absolutely brilliant. That's a great way to finish off. We won't hold you up uh, much longer because you're obviously a busy person and we can see you've got, <laughs> you've got a few calls coming through. Last thing, what's next for you? Uh, you're finishing off your degree. Uh, where's your career path taking you um, once you finish? Yeah. Um, so next year, I hopefully get a job in a hospital. Um, that'll be pretty good. And then I've got to just try and figure out what, you know, career path in medicine will work for me. It might be um, in surgery, it might be in cardiology, um, and we'll just see. 
Um, so that's pretty exciting. A um, lot of work ahead, but you know, hopefully not too much that I can still enjoy all of my sports. Um, over the summer, um, uh, I've been doing some work as well for Box Altitude, um, and they're a local Melbourne company that does altitude training systems. Um, and so I knew about that company because I used to use them when I did my comeback and I used altitude training always when I was, um, training with in the world tour. Um, and so we, we did some work as well and there'll be a partnership announced with a a world tour team in the not too distant future as well. Um, that company, which is pretty massive. So still continue to do some work for them this year and coming up as well. Um, which is pretty exciting and, um, and hopefully a a good career in medicine and, um, maybe even see you guys around at at a bike race one day in the not too distant future. It was a real pleasure chatting and it it really sounds like you guys are doing the right thing in cycling and, um, I've seen you, the team around and hopefully get to catch up in the future. Fantastic. Uh, Will, you've, uh, the, the stuff you've told our listeners is absolute gold, mate, and um, it's fantastic to hear someone who's been there and done that, you know, really invested in uh, in understanding what it took and and giving some great tips. Um, we, could, we couldn't have scripted anything that you said any better. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the way to go, and especially with the younger athletes, uh, with the middle-aged athletes, you know, age groupers, and, and, you know, if you can't hear the lessons that Will's taking today, I'm not sure what direction you're, you're heading, but uh, it's unbelievable value, uh, um, you know, stuff that you've been given today. So I really, really appreciate it, mate. I think uh, the same thing. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Thanks a lot. I guess my closing message is have fun and listen to your coach. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Thanks so much, Will. Really appreciate you coming on. I uh, really appreciate the chat. It was absolutely brilliant. That's, uh, that's it for this All episode. Right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Bye.